<laughs> you know, when uh, Martha sang Oh Holy Night, I was uh, researched that song last week, and uh, uh, the articles I read about the song said it's the hardest of all the Christmas songs to sing. And she does it so effortlessly, and it's an amazing woman's voice. And uh, I remember all the years that uh, Martha was the number one, I don't know, that's a bad thing to say, I guess, in a church, the number one singer in your church. And she was a featured singer in our church, and uh, she blessed so many of us. Well, let's take our Bibles. What did you say? She's still number one. She's still number one. That's For those of you who heard that, you didn't know what, what happened there, that was a gentleman over there on that side of the room said she's still number one, uh, but he didn't tell you that he married her. <laughs> so anyway, she's still number one for all of us. Okay, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the service of Ken Stoner. We thank you for the faithfulness of all who came out today in the midst of a very uh, cold streak in our city. And uh, we come here, Lord, because we want to worship you and we want to hear from you. It's one thing for us to lift up our voices and praise you. It's another thing for us to be obedient to what you have to say to us. So, Lord, help us to combine both of these, a warm heart and an obedient heart. Help us to go forth and be the hands and feet of Christ to a lost and dying world, a world in need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today we come to the conversation between Jesus and what we normally call the rich young ruler. Now, I need to set this up a little bit. You need to know the context of the conversation. Last week, we saw three scenes. The first scene involved a widow going to an unjust judge. The second scene involved a tax collector standing in the temple praying for mercy. And then the third scene involved people bringing little children to Jesus. All three groups were people of no importance in society. A widow meant nothing in society. She had no status. Uh, she could offer nothing. She had no means. And a tax collector was considered an outlaw. He was not one who kept the law of Moses. And so he was called outlaw. <clears throat> he had no status in society. And neither did children. And yet Jesus said, of such is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is going to be made up of people just like this who just humble themselves before God. They're already been humbled in society. And they humble themselves before God and they ask for mercy. And he says, of such is the kingdom of God. The lowly, the humble. Now we come to, Luke introduces us to a man in chapter 18 and verse 18. A man of importance. And uh, he's heard this conversation between Jesus and the children and Jesus and the disciples concerning the children. And he says, well, what about me? How do I get into the kingdom of God? If it's like the kingdom of God is like children, how do I get into the kingdom of God? So Jesus is going to answer his question. So look at chapter 18 and verse 18. Now, a certain ruler asked him, saying, 
Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the first thing I want you to notice is how this man is identified. Luke identifies him as a ruler. That means he is the ruler of a synagogue. That means a synagogue ruler. He's the president of a synagogue. If you live in a Jewish neighborhood, you know that in the synagogue there's a rabbi, but there's also a president. That means a businessman who has some wealth, a man of means. So this is a man of status. This is a man who's very important. And uh, that's important that we know that when we, we look at this particular verse. Then I want you also to notice how he addresses Jesus. Look in verse 18, how he addresses Jesus. He calls him a teacher, but he adds an adjective there. He calls him good teacher. Now this good is not moral good. Not good versus evil. This is a, 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 a compliment to Jesus. It's like we'd say, good sir. It means he's trying to elevate Jesus. He's trying to say, I'm an important person, and guess what? You're important too. He's trying to elevate Jesus, so he calls him good sir. And uh, he's coming to Jesus as an equal, in a sense. And so for this man, status is very important. Now, look how Jesus responds to him. Jesus said, uh, why do you call me good? Don't elevate me. Don't give me status. <coughs> No one is good, but who? God. God's the only one that really should be honored in the way that you're trying to honor me. Uh, God is the one that we, is the, really the important one in this whole matter. We are just humble. We should be humble. God is the only one that should be exalted. Now look at the question that he has for Jesus at the end of verse 18. See, Jesus isn't willing to play his game. And so he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. Now, this shows us that eternal life is equal to the kingdom of God back in verse 17. Surely I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall not enter it. He overhears that conversation about entering the kingdom of God. And now he says, well, what do I have to do to have eternal life, inherit eternal life? Eternal life and kingdom of God are exactly the same. Okay? He's going to use five phrases that all describe the same thing. The kingdom of God. And when he's talking about the kingdom of God here, he's talking about the future kingdom. When the king returns to earth and sets up his kingdom, who's going to get in on that kingdom? Who will have life that never ends at that point? And so that's his question. What do I have to do? Notice the word do in there. You see that? He says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now, some Bible teachers think that what he's saying is, what a, is that he thinks he has to work for his salvation. But this has nothing to do with works. He doesn't think he has to work for salvation. He's a Jew. Jews had a covenant with God. Remember when Israel left Egypt? And God made a covenant with Israel. And he gave them the Ten Commandments. That was his covenant between himself and Israel. And Jews were to keep the Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments were not for Egypt. Was Egypt to remember the Sabbath day? Had nothing to do with the pagans. 
The Ten Commandments were part of a covenant that God had given with Israel, and the Ten Commandments and keeping the Ten Commandments marked you off as a person of God. So he said, what do I have to do? He knows that there are certain covenant requirements that God has. If you don't keep those covenant requirements, then that showed that you were not uh, worthy of anything. You were an outlaw. You were a law keeper, just like we said before. So what Jesus is going to do, he's going to answer that. So look at chapter 20. It makes sense. He says, you know the commandments. That's what Jesus says. You know the commandments. Well, he certainly would know the commandments because he's a synagogue ruler. He would know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. So... The person who keeps the commandments is in the covenant with God. The person who keeps the covenant commandments is in the covenant with God. Jesus chooses five. Now notice these five. Four are negative and one is positive. They all have to do with relationships with other people. Look at those again. Every one has to do with how you relate to other people. It's very important that you understand this. So Jesus says, well, you know the commandments, you know the covenant. If you keep the covenant, you're a covenant person, you inherit the kingdom of God. If you don't keep the covenant commandments, you're outside the covenant. Obviously, you're not a covenant person. You won't inherit the kingdom of God. See, But it's not a work salvation. It's because you're in the covenant that you keep the commandments. It's like when Christians, what are we to do? If I said, what do you have to do to be saved? Well, we might say repent and believe. Guess what Jesus would say? Love God. Did he ever say something like this? And then who should you love? And love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, that's the fulfillment of what? Of the law. Now, if you're a Christian, guess what you're to do? You love God, and then what else? Love your neighbor. And guess what? If you don't love God, you don't love your neighbor, no matter what you say, you're not a what? <laughs> you're only a Christian name. Because a Christian, the one who's in, in a relationship with God or in covenant with God, is a person that does these things. Everyone else is faking themselves out. So Jesus is talking about relationships. So when the guy hears this, it's very interesting. Look what he says. He said in verse 21, All these things I have kept from my youth. And I believe that he has. He's done this. He's a pious Jew. And uh, he's not like the Gentiles. When God told the, led the Israelites out of the nation of Egypt, he said, you won't be like the Gentile nations. You'll be different. You'll be in a covenant relationship with me. You won't steal from people. Notice that one commandment was steal. Well, what does that mean? Well, we think steal means go into a grocery store and steal candy bar. That's not the kind of stealing he's talking about. God said, in my nation, I will establish a covenant with Israel, and you will be my people. And then what did God do? He took them out of, the Israel, uh, out of Egypt, led them to the promised land, and he gave everyone property. You remember that? God gave them property. It was, only, it was his to give and it's his to take away. And if I go and steal that from you, guess what I've just done? 
I've taken away something that God had given. That's the kind of stealing we was talking about there. You've broken the covenant. So this guy realizes, he says, look, I don't keep slaves. Jews weren't allowed to keep slaves. Why? Because the Egyptians kept slaves. Uh, the Jews weren't allowed to charge interest when they loaned the money. Why? Because you would be taking something away from somebody that didn't belong to you. So, all this covenant relationship is a special relationship between Israel and God. And the guy said, you know, I've been doing that since my youth. And then Jesus said, well, guess what? You lack one thing. So look at verse 22. He said, you still lack one thing. Okay? And here it is. Walk it off. Pray the prayer of salvation. That's what you lack. Isn't that what he said? Now, what's the question? What must I do to what? Inherit eternal life. And what did Jesus say? You lack one thing. To what? Inherit eternal life. See, this is where it gets serious. This is where we have to put all of our preconceived theology and all of our understanding and throw it out the door and just let Jesus speak. The question is, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you lack one thing. And here it is, in verse 22. He says, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. That's what this is required of this man. To sell everything that he has, A-L-L, and distribute it to the poor. Now, Jesus is not concerned about making this man poor. He doesn't want this man to live sort of a a frugal life. That's really not what Jesus is after right here. You know what he's concerned about? He's concerned about the poor. He's concerned about people who have of no importance that they're taken care of. People in the covenant community should be taken care of. See? And those of us who claim to have a relationship with God should be taken care of them. So we're doing this all for the sake of the kingdom. All for the sake of the poor. So, the attitude that Jesus wants us to have is this. What is mine is yours. What is mine is at your disposal. That's what Jesus said. That, wait, is that what it means? To love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might? And then love your neighbor how? Now, if you love your neighbor equal to yourself, then there won't be any, there won't be any status division. There won't be any hierarchy. Well, this person is more important than this person. Because if you love each other as yourself, guess what? then what's mine is yours, and what's yours is mine, and I don't see you as somebody down here and myself as somebody up here. I'm not trying to exalt myself. I'm not trying to lift myself up. I see all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, that's what I think Jesus is trying to, to get across. What he's trying to show us is that status is not important. We are to give away to the poor without expecting anything back in return. And when we do this, we identify with Jesus, because Jesus had no possessions, and guess what? He depended on hospitality. He had no income, and he depended on hospitality. It's very important that you understand that. And many times people weren't hospitable, so on those nights he had to lay down and put his head on a rock. But guess what he did? He made sure other people were taken care of. So that's what we're to do. 
And it's very important that you, that you get this, okay? Now look at the end of verse 22. He says, and if you do that, you will have treasure in heaven. Now that's another statement that means kingdom of God or inherit eternal life. All those things mean the same thing. You'll have treasure in heaven. That means you'll have an account that God is putting to your account. You're getting an inheritance. He's putting it to your account. Treasure in heaven, eternal life, and kingdom of God all mean the same thing in this passage. We saw that phrase, treasure in heaven, once before in Luke, and it also meant eternal life. So, he says that you will have this eternal life, basically, if you do this. And then right at the end of verse 22, he says, and then come and follow me. Now, notice those steps. Step number one. Now, remember the question? What must I do to what? Have eternal life. Okay, here it is. Step number one, sell all you have. That's the first thing you need to do. Then step number two, what? Come and follow me. Step number one for eternal life, sell all you have. Step number two, what? Come and follow me. <clears throat> See? So, the bottom line is that the kingdom of God is received. This is what we found out last week. The kingdom of God, it must be received the same way you receive children. Now, how did the disciples receive the children? They rejected them, didn't they? They didn't want to be bothered with children. Jesus said, if you will accept and reach out to the littlest and the people with the least importance, then yours is the kingdom of God. And that's what he's trying to teach here, that what we are to do is we are to care for those who have no means of support. Just like your children. If you've been married and you've had kids, you took care of your kids. The moment they came into the world, guess what? You gave everything they needed, and you never expected one thing back from them. In fact, they couldn't repay you even if they wanted to. That's how you took care of your children, didn't you? Why? Because they were helpless. They weren't important. They didn't add anything to your family. They didn't add any extra income. They didn't add anything. They were a burden at times. But you loved them. And so you took care of your children without expecting anything back in return. And that's what Jesus says we're to do and for the poor. And that's what repentance looks like. When Jesus calls us to repent, he means to reorient your life away from the system of this world and how this world operates and start operating according to the principles of the kingdom of God. What does repentance look like? This is what it looks like. You're going to see this over and over again. This is exactly a person who says, I repent, I repent. But then their life doesn't change. There's no repentance. Repentance looks like this. Okay. Now it's very important that you get that because as we go through the Gospel of Luke, you'll see how this comes up over and over again. Now look at verse 23. You're going to get some of the reactions. Now when he heard this, that's the ruler. He became very sorrowful. Why? Because <laughs> he only had $10 in the bank. <laughs> you only have $10 in the bank, you can get rid of the $10. You're not too much worse off than you were before. He's very sorrowful because he is rich. Now, the amazing thing, this is the ruler of the synagogue. This man believes in the inerrancy of the scriptures. This man interprets the scriptures literally. Do you know he's a, he interprets the Bible literally, that man? 
How do you know? Because when Jesus gave him the five commandments, he interpreted those literally, and he said, I, I do all that. <laughs> but guess what? When he gave him the sixth one, even though he believed the Bible was inerrant, even though he believed the words were infallible, he wasn't willing to do that. And so he's very sorrowful. See? So, now let me just ask you a question. Might as well just ask you a question right now. Sort of an aside question. Uh, had he given everything away? Would God have taken care of, care of him? Or would he have been as poor as a church mouse, and that would have been the end of his life? See, that's the question. If he would have done what Jesus had said, would God have taken care of him? If you say yes, then all he would have had to do when he gave things away is what? Just trust God. Just trust God. Now, let me ask you this. I don't know. <laughs> okay, now we don't want to start meddling, do we? No, 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 no. Okay, no. so reaction number one, he's very sorrowful. Now look at reaction number two. Look at verse 24. And when Jesus, this is the reaction of Jesus, when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, and I think he probably said this to the crowd that was standing around, how hard it is. For those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's a very difficult thing for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. If, if the requirements of entering the kingdom of God look something like what Jesus said. <laughs> because your money can get a hold of you. It's got a grip on you. It's got its hands around your neck. It doesn't want to let go. It's not that you don't want to let go. In fact, I'd say that most people do want to let go. They really want to, but they just can't. It's like, instead of them having the money in their hands and gripping the money where they can let go, it's like the money has its hands around them and gripping them. So Jesus says it's very hard for a rich person. Now that's, that's hard. How hard is it? Well, look at verse 25. He gives us an analogy. Well, let me tell you this. He says, it would be easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Notice the whole thing is about the kingdom of God and eternal life. They're all interchangeable. Well, how hard is it for a camel to get through an eye of a needle? Well, if we're talking about a needle's eye that you thread, well, that would be what? Impossible. Impossible. Now, we know that there were openings in the walls around Jerusalem, and one was called the needle's eye, and camels would come into the city, and they'd have to get down on their knees. And you know how hard that is for a camel? They get down on its knees, and they had to push them through. This little opening was about that high. And they could make it, but it was pretty hard. It was a real struggle. So whichever it is, it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Wealth has a tendency to test our fidelity to God, you know. It, it tests whether our faith really is genuine or not. Now look at verse 26. We have the third reaction. Verse 26. And those, that's the people who heard it, said, well, who then can be saved? Man, if that's the case, who can be saved? Now notice he uses the word saved. 
You see the word say? Kingdom of God, eternal life, treasure in heaven, saved. All meaning the same thing. Just use the synonyms interchangeable. Well, who then can be saved? That's their reaction. It's sort of a reaction of uh, they're startled in a sense. It seems like uh, it's going to be very hard. So look at verse 27. He said, the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. God can grant you the ability. See, to come to Christ the way Christ wants you to come, it's pretty impossible. But God will grant you the ability. It originates with God. Salvation originates with God. Jesus said, no one can come to the Father unless the Spirit, what? Draws him. See, it takes that miraculous touch from the Holy Spirit. And so, he has to initiate it. He has to start it. He convicts our hearts. He gives us the power to do it. Now we come to the promise. <clears throat> look at verse 20. Well, let's look at verse 27 first. Verse 28. Verse 28. This is very interesting. Peter pipes up. Peter's the spokesman. Verse 28. Look what he said. Peter said, See? Hey, Lord, take a look over here. Over this direction. Look. Speaking on behalf of the apostles. Number one. We have left all. Step one. We have left all. Step one. We have left all. Step two. What's it say in verse 28? Followed you. Same two steps that Jesus gave the rich young ruler. Sell all you have and give it to the poor. Step one. Come and follow me. Peter says. He harps up. Hey, Jesus, guess what? We've done that. We've left all. And he did. He left the fishing business. And step two, we have followed you. So he's done it. It shows that with God's help, you can be saved. Now look what Jesus says. It's very interesting. Jesus gives them a promise. And this promise is for the rich young ruler. It's for us. It's for everybody. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you that there is no one who has left, look at that, house, parents, brothers, wife, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present age or present time and in the age to come what? Eternal life. Now go back to verse 18. What was the young man asking what he could do? How can I inherit what? Eternal life. What did Jesus say to do? Drop it all. Follow me. Peter said, well, we've done it. Now what's Jesus' promise? Here it is. 29 and 28. I say there's no one who's done this for the kingdom's sake. Who shall not receive what? You get it all back. You're going to get it all back. See, initially, here's what he's asking you to do. Just say, it's all yours, Lord. However you want it used, I'll use it for the kingdom. It's at your disposal. And I'm going to follow you. And he may ask you to... Give it to the poor like he did to the rich young ruler. He may not ask you to give it all to the poor. But you have to put it at his disposal. And he says, don't worry about it. You'll get it back. 
you'll get it back in this lifetime. Now, many of these things that they gave up were parents, brothers, wives, children. How are you going to get all that back in this lifetime? If you forsake all that, how are you going to get it back in this lifetime? Because you will enter into the Christian community. And take a look at this room. Do you see a lot of brothers and sisters? Do you see a lot of money here? Would any one of our needs not be met if we had a need in this class? Wouldn't someone come to our aid? Isn't everything that we have at our disposal, at each other's disposal? See, what happens is that he promises that he'll take care of us. Even if we give it all away in this lifetime, he'll take care of us in this lifetime. In fact, far more than we'd ever can even conceive it, if we're willing to do what he says. And in the life to come, in the next, what's he say, in the age to come, when the kingdom arrives, you will have that eternal life that you want. So that's basically Jesus' promise at this point. So what he's calling for, and this is all for the kingdom's sake, he's calling for a total reorientation of our lives away from the way the world operates. Let's think how the world's operated in the past few months. And where it's gotten us. Because people say, more, 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 mine, 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 greed, greed, greed. Well, guess what? It went out, out the window. How about if 10% of those people said, I'm going to take Jesus' call. When they had no, I'm giving it to the kingdom's sake. Would he have taken care of them? He'll take care of them. See? So we have to reorient our life totally in a different direction. Away from the world system and need to operate according to biblical or kingdom principles and kingdom values. And we're promised that he'll take care of us in this age and in the age to come he'll give us eternal life. Now, when Jesus says this, remember, the ruler's still standing by. He hasn't walked away. When Peter pipes up and says, well, we've done it, and Jesus says, well, don't worry, I'll take care of you. You're going to be taken care of in this life, and you'll have eternal life. In the age to come, you're going to have eternal life. That rich young ruler who's wanting to know how to get eternal life is standing right there. He hears it all. He hears the promise. What does he do? Doesn't tell us what he does. We don't know if he comes and follows Jesus. We don't know what he does. But he hears it all. He hears not only the command, but he gets the promise. Now what happens is that Jesus goes into a private conversation. Now look at verse 31. 31. Then he took the twelve aside. He took the twelve aside. And he said to them, Behold, I'm going up, or we're going up to Jerusalem. And all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. What things? The things that are written in the Old Testament. The things that are written in the Old Testament. What happens? What's going to happen in Jerusalem? And we know it. Because we already know the story. But guess what? When Jesus was saying this to the disciples, they didn't understand what was going on. We know what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Jesus says all the things that the Old Testament prophets wrote about are going to happen. It's a divine necessity. These prophets were inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's going to happen. It's a divine necessity. How many things are going to happen? All these things that are written are going to happen. Jesus in Jerusalem will fulfill God's divine plan. 
Now, this past week, uh, Lynn and I were reading a book, and there was a whole section on it about Reverend Moon and the Moonies, the Mooney cult. And one of the things that Reverend Moon says is that Jesus failed at fulfilling God's plan. God's plan was that Jesus was to get married and have a family and multiply, and the kingdom was going to come on earth through a divine family. But guess what Jesus says? All that the Old Testament prophets wrote about will be fulfilled in Jerusalem. He fulfills the divine plan. He didn't fail. He completes God's plan. Now, what is God's plan? How does he fulfill it? Look at verse 32. He, the Son of Man, whom Jesus identifies as himself, will be delivered up to the Gentiles by the Jewish authorities. So Jesus' teaching ruffles the feathers of the Jewish authorities. Why does it ruffle the feathers of uppity-uppies in Jewish circles? Because guess what he's trying to do? Bring them down a notch. If you bring, if you, if you're brought down a notch, you're going to lose your power. <laughs> you're going to lose your control. That causes a lot of trouble. So they're going to turn him over to the Gentiles. Okay? The Jewish authorities turn him over. And he will be, verse 32, mocked. Now this is all prophecy. This hasn't happened yet. And insulted and spit upon. And they will scourge him and kill him. He will be humiliated and he will be disgraced. He will be treated like a common criminal. Well, a criminal is a person who has no rights, a person who has no, no status, a person of no importance. Uh, they're just gonna they're gonna kill him. Now, what Jesus is doing here, I think why Luke puts that right in this passage right here, right after the rich young ruler, is he wants us to see something. He wants us to see how Jesus is treated. Because Jesus is our model. Okay? Uh, Jesus is a picture of how we're supposed to live. Now, let me ask you this. Did Jesus have a home? Did he have a heavenly home? Did he leave that home? For the kingdom's sake? Did he have an earthly home for 30 years? Did he have a mother? Did he have brothers and sisters? Did he leave them for the kingdom's sake? Did he give up everything that he had? Yes. Did he forsake all? Yes. See, Jesus is our model. What he's showing us, Luke is showing us, is that Jesus here is our model. Though he, though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes. He's not asking us to do anything that he didn't do himself. Though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes. Is there anything Jesus lacked? Did he ever, did he starve to death? Did he have a beautiful purple robe that was worth so much that the soldiers gambled for it to see who would get it? Did he lack anything? Was his needs taken care of? Yes. Why? Because he trusted God. Did God send people alongside to take care of him? To meet his needs? To Mary and Martha and Lazarus to open their house? <laughs> Millionaires to open their house? To him in today's society? See, 
Though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes. And he was killed. He, he was identified with sinners. Isaiah the prophet said. He was identified with sinners, with the lowly, with the transgressors, with the marginalized, with the disenfranchised, with the people who were nobodies. He identifies with us. And then look what it says in verse 33. And then the verse 33. Scourge killed, and the third day he will be raised. Look at that. The third day he will be raised again. Who raised him? God. God vindicated him. He's like, you're a nobody. You don't mean anything, they said. You're a criminal. Guess what? God said you're a somebody. He exalted him. If you humble yourself, what does God say he'll do? He will exalt you. See? That's what he'll do for us. At the consummation of the kingdom, we too will be raised. And we will reign and rule with Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ, in a sense, becomes our model. See? He doesn't ask us to do anything that he won't do. Now look at verse 34. But they understood none of these things. What? What's that you say? They understood none of these things. This saying, this whole thing about dying and all this stuff, was hidden from them. And they did not know, meaning understand, the things which were spoken. They just couldn't get it. The Messiah wasn't supposed to die. You must have it wrong, Jesus. He's supposed to ride in on a white stallion, overthrow the Roman government, set up his throne, proclaim God's kingdom. That's how it's going to happen. When they heard this, they just say, what is he talking about? This doesn't make any sense. And he is going to set up God's kingdom. But he's not going to do it through force. He's the prince of peace, but he's not going to bring peace through force. God's plan is a different plan. God's plan is to bring about salvation of the world, bring about the kingdom of God through humility and through suffering. And Christ dies and is put to death by Rome. And they said, we've... Now, Rome, by the way, was a, was a country, very, was an empire. It was very similar to the United States in the sense that it was, a, it was built on law and order. There were laws, and you kept the laws, and you were you know, punished. It was a good society. They weren't bad people. It was a decent society. They saw Jesus as a troublemaker. They got rid of him. The Jews saw him as a troublemaker. They got rid of him. They thought they were doing right. We're gonna he's causing too much problem. I mean there are crowds rising up on during the Passover feast. This is gonna be a riot if we don't stop this. Hey, what would we do if we had a riot downtown? We'd send out the police on the horses, wouldn't we? We'd stop it. That's what you have to do. They said, We're gonna stop this. And guess what? They we're gonna try to bring about peace through force. Get those horses out there, get the spears out there. But you can never bring about peace through force. Do you know that? Ever. Even if you force a peace upon a person, or upon a group of people, they will always resent it, they'll always be seizing, and they're always plotting to overthrow that government. You can't bring about peace through force. God is going to bring about a kingdom, and he's going to bring about universal peace, but it doesn't come through force. It comes through suffering and through death. And God exalts Jesus Christ, and he's the only one who can exalt him. So what we have here is that 
They didn't understand that. Now, Lynn and I were in the car today trying to figure out what that would be like. What is it like for Jesus to say, hey, I'm going to go there, I'm going to die, and they say, that can't be. That can't be. First of all, they hear that, it would have to be a disappointment. You're the Messiah, you're going to die, it doesn't make sense. Is there anything that we can think of in our life that would be equivalent to that? Where we think one thing is supposed to happen, and that's not what's going to happen. And we're totally confused. And we couldn't even think of anything. That sort of is an analogy with this. But they are absolutely befuddled at this point. They don't understand anything that's going to happen. And yet, they're only a couple days away from Jerusalem. In fact, uh, in chapter 19... Our next chapter, we have the triumphal entry, which is going to be taking place. And they're absolutely befuddled. They have no idea what's going to happen. And let me give you a couple lessons here. <coughs> and I think this applies to us as well as to this text. Number one, the danger of dogma. The danger of dogma. The danger of uh, your theology. The rich young ruler and the twelve, the apostles, in this passage had a preconceived theology. They thought they knew how things were supposed to work, and guess what? Jesus says just the opposite. And it throws them for a loop, and they can't understand. Anytime you have a preconceived theology, it throws you for a loop when things don't fit into your preconceived theology. That's why I said to uh, Jim Lang the other night, I said, I teach my students in some of my classes, that they need to apply what I call the Mars principle to the Bible. You need to read the Bible like you're an alien who's just come from Mars to Earth, and you've never seen the Bible before. You say, what's this? What is this book? Oh, let me read it. It looks like a story. They have no preconceived theology. No background whatsoever. And they read it. Sell all you have and give to the poor, and you'll have eternal life. And they say, that must mean sell all you have. <laughs> give to the poor, and you'll have eternal life. But guess what we do? We bring our preconceived theology to the text, and we say, it can't mean that. <laughs> Just like the rich young ruler. Oh, the five first commandments you gave? Yeah, I understand that. That sixth one? So, I can't... He must not be, that must not be literal. He must be talking figuratively. See how you bring your preconceived theology? Messiah will come on a horse and overthrow him. Um, Jesus the Messiah said, ah, yeah, that can't happen. So the danger of dogma. Very dangerous to take our theology and impose it upon a text and say, Jesus is wrong. You know, he's not wrong, he's right. We're wrong, okay? Number two, you can't outgive God. I think that shows it. In finances, you can't outgive God. He'll repay you. Now notice, Jesus doesn't tell that rich young ruler, sell all you have, and then uh, you'll, you'll never have anything again. He just says that's the initial thing for this guy. Here's what's going to be required if you sell all you have. Uh, it's not that the guy can't make more money later. That doesn't mean the guy won't have a job later on. Like he's going to have to be a pauper. But what, what he says is that if you sell it, he'll take care of you. 
See, in this lifetime and the lifetime to come. So you can't outgive God. If you give him your finances, he'll repay you. If you give him your life, even to the point of martyrdom, like some of our missionaries do, he will raise you up. You have life eternal. So nothing that you give will not be returned to you. In fact, it will be returned to you in a better form than before. And then finally, I think what Luke wants us to see is this whole thing of faith. <clears throat> the issue of faith. Do we really have, do we really trust God? You know, a lot of us trust, we say, well, we trust God. Do we really trust God? How much do you trust God? Let me ask you, how much do you trust God? How much do I trust God? I know people say, well, I trust him to take me to heaven. Do you trust him enough to tithe? Well, I can't do that because, you know, my... See, here he says everything. Well, just give it all. Give your whole self, your whole life, everything you own. Put it at his disposal. You can't outgive God. If you trust God, he'll give it back. Now, what I want to show you is that we're going to come in verse 35 to a blind man. And guess what he does? He can't see physically. Things are hidden from him. Hey, things are hidden from the apostles. They don't even understand what Jesus is talking about. It says all this was hidden. But now we're going to have a blind man who things are physically hidden from him. But guess what he does? He trusts the Son of David. And his eyes have opened. And then you come to Zacchaeus chapter 19 next week. And Jesus says, Zach, I need to come to your house. He was a toll collector. And look at verse 8 of chapter 19. When Zacchaeus realizes who Jesus is and that he accepts him a sinner. In fact, look at verse 7. When Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house, they said, He's gone to be a guest with a man who's a sinner. He hangs out with sinners. See? Of course he does. But Jesus' status isn't anything. Then Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Lord, half of my goods, I do what? Give to the poor. Half of my goods. Guess what? God touched his heart and what's the first thing he wants to do? Take care of others. I give to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I will restore it fourfold. Some of us need to do that. Fourfold. Now look what Jesus says in verse 9. He says, Great, Zach. Today, salvation has come to your house. You've just repented. You've dropped out of that system, out of that rat race. You're not going to live by those principles. You're going to live by the kingdom of God principles. You're going to just give everything. You're going to share what you have with other people. That's what repentance <coughs> looks like. That's what we're going to pick up next week. Lord, during this uh, Christmas season, the time of giving is one, the, one of the times of the year where Americans especially are very giving. 
And we, we feel good when we give. Gifts to our friends and our families and people we love. And, and we don't expect anything back when we give. We do it because we love them. And we want to show them how much we appreciate them. And Lord, we have this sense of well-being and worth when we do that. And it's that one day a year, Lord, that we somehow sort of just touch the hem of your garment and get a glimpse of what the kingdom's like. And Lord, that should be the way we live all the time. We're, we're very generous people. Help us, Lord, to be trusting. Take your words to heart. Put them into practice. Help us to realize, Lord, that your kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It's a reversal of everything that we've been taught in society. It's not a worldly system. It was born in your heart. You brought a savior into the world who was a baby. A nobody. Not a great general. And here this baby was declared the Prince of Peace, Israel's King, the Lord. And uh, right from the start, you gave us a glimpse that you were doing things differently than were normally prescribed. So, Lord, help us to realize that important thing that this Christmas season is that upon his shoulders shall be a kingdom that shall last forever. Lord, help us to be part of it. Help us to examine our own hearts and determine whether we really do have a relationship with you. There are evidences of that, and one is the way we take care of people who are worse off than us. Help us to have loving hearts and giving hearts. In Christ's name, amen.